Friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, this morning we're reading from verses 7 to 18. Uh, we're in a series in 2 Corinthians that we're calling Grace for the Week, and today we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification, um, or maybe we can understand it as uh, growth in Christ in order to become more like Christ. Um, and what we're going to see today is that the power of the gospel to save is also uh, the power of the gospel to sanctify, the power to transform us. Because um, the thing about gospel centrality is that the gospel is not just important uh, for how we get into salvation, but how we actually live out the Christian life. The gospel is about more than um, simply giving us the key and entering the kingdom, uh, but it's our map. It's how we uh, live life until we arrive home. Uh, so the sermon this morning is entitled, Transformed by Beholding. So I invite you as we turn our attention to God's word to stand with me. Standing is an act of worship. It's the way that we recognize uh, God's word um, as holy, as inspired, and as authoritative. Second Corinthians chapter 3, reading verses 7 to 18. Hear now God's word. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put on who would put on a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated, dear friends, and would you pray with me once more? God, we ask for your help. Because apart from your spirit, we cannot understand uh, the truths that you have for us today. Without your help, we can read the words on the page and we can make sense of it grammatically. Um, but we're asking for more than just understanding. We're asking for conviction and change and challenge. We're asking for comfort. We're asking, Lord, that you would speak to us so that your church would be built up and your people edified and your name glorified. So do this, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, last week, I gave an image um, about what it means to have the Spirit given to us to give us a new heart, to walk in new obedience, to have a new life. And that image was basically saying um, that we are like a dead tree. And uh, rather than merely taking fruit and stapling it to the tree to have the appearance of life, uh, as a dead tree, what God does is he uproots our hearts and he replants us in the fresh soil of the gospel so that new obedience, new fruit begins to bear in our lives. Uh, and I begin with that because as I was thinking about that, another story I heard years ago came to mind. Um, there once was a young boy 
who often at night would sneak out of the house to go and play with his friends way past his curfew. And luckily for him, right outside of his bedroom window was a uh, dead tree that was so tall that it landed, uh, the branches extended right to his window so he could climb out late at night without anybody knowing. Well, one day he hears his dad complaining about this dang old tree that had been dead for so many years that wasn't bearing fruit and he was going to cut it down. And the boy, now getting a little alarmed and scared, devised a plan to stop his dad. I mean, this was his way of being able to break curfew. And so that night he climbed out of the tree, went into his neighbor's yard, stole a bushel of apples, came back and began stapling it onto that tree. And in the morning he woke up startled by the shout of his dad coming from right outside his window. So pretending he had no idea what was happening, he comes down and says, what's the fuss all about? What's the big deal? And his dad excitedly shouts, it's a miracle, my son, a genuine real life miracle. Years ago, I planted an orange tree, but somehow it's bearing apples. (laughs) See, friends, if, if you are a Christian, if, you're, if you are united to Jesus by faith, your new life in Christ is a genuine miracle. And it now bears new fruit that it would and never could before. This means that you are no longer enslaved to sin, but indwelled by the Spirit. And this produces in your life new obedience and new fruit and new change. And this is why it's so important that a healthy Christian, one of the signs of healthy Christian discipleship is growth and maturity and change and transformation in your life. You know, a Christian is one who progressively through their lives by the power of the Spirit is being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. You are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You are living unto obedience to God. You are fighting and conquering persistent sin. And in all this, you are beginning to look more like Jesus. The question is, that's a great goal, but how does that happen in life? What is the actual dynamics of what's taking place? And it's an important question to figure this out, to know the answer to this, especially for those of you who desire to change, you want to be like Jesus. And yet you're so frustrated at the slow pace of change in your life. The spirit is willing, your flesh is weak. And others of you, this is an important question because for you, you are so frustrated at the short-lived nature of the changes that take place in your life. Something happens for a while and you're transformed, but just as quickly as it sprouted up, as quickly does it die away. And for others of you, this question is important because for you, you are very concerned that there are certain areas of your life, maybe certain sins that you can't seem to have victory over. And so what is that power to change? Where does that come from? The answer, of course, is not found in sheer determination or your dominant willpower or personal discipline. In fact, the answer to that question is not found in you at all. It's found outside of yourself. Our passage today is very important. And in it, Apostle Paul tells us that the power to change, the power to sanctify, actually comes from the same power to save. And so here is the one-sentence summary of the sermon. It's very simple. Behold Christ in order to become like Christ. You become what you behold. So behold Christ in order to become like Christ. 
Now, in our passage right before this, Paul, if you remember from last week, was speaking about something called the new covenant. And the new covenant was this new arrangement that God had entered into with mankind that was established by Jesus in his death and resurrection. Now, the fact that there's a new covenant means there's also an old covenant. And in the old covenant, man could only relate to God on the basis of our obedience to his law. But in the new covenant, we relate to God now by Christ's spirit who lives in us. Now, the new covenant, the reason Paul begins to glory in it and boast of it and talk so much of it in our passage is because it is far superior to the old covenant. You see, Paul does this thing where he compares the old covenant and the new covenant, and it gets a little theological, but it's important. What he says is this, living life under the old covenant means that you belong to three things. He says, a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation, and he says, a covenant that is fading, temporary. And then he says to belong to that covenant is death, it's condemnation. But he says to belong to the new covenant is even greater. It's even more glorious because in the new covenant, it's a ministry of the spirit, a ministry of righteousness, and it's a ministry that is permanent. Dear friends, the reason this is so important is because apart from Jesus Christ, all of us live in the old covenant. Until your life is transferred from the old covenant to the new covenant, until your arrangement with God is based on different terms, all of us here are doomed to death and condemnation. This is the fate of those under the law and under the old covenant. And what Paul is saying here is that regardless of how great your moral record is, regardless of how upstanding of a neighbor you are, regardless of how hard you are working at self-improvement in your life, regardless of how stellar you are in all of your religious performances and observances, nothing you do can ever be enough to save you from the death and condemnation under the old covenants. Here's the thing. Many of you are really good people. In fact, many of you are some of the best people that I know personally. But who in here would ever claim perfection? I think none of us. And yet perfection is what God demands. And this is why life under the old covenant is no way to be saved. Now, Paul comes and he writes in verse 7 these words. He says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. And what Paul is saying here is uh, the ministry of death, uh, that does a reference to life under God's law. And what Paul is doing is he's drawing from images from uh, the book of Exodus. You may remember when Moses received the law of God, he went up on Mount Sinai. Right? And God gave him the commandments written on tablets of stone. And then he came down because he had met with God. His face was glowing. His face was radiant that people couldn't even look upon him. And it seems like the giving of the law was this momentous, glorious moment. And yet, Paul here is referring to that law as the ministry of death. Why? And the answer is not because the law is bad despite what we may think. The answer is not because the law is bad, but because we are bad. You see, the law is actually good. 
The law in and of itself, God's law is good and glorious because what do laws do ultimately? Laws are meant to protect life, preserve life, and prevent death. So just think about uh, some of the simplest laws, traffic laws. As much as you may despise traffic laws, as much as you may break traffic laws, you may have broken a few on the way here. Those laws are set in place for your good and your safety. And it's when you disobey them or break them that extreme consequences can come about. You know, this past summer, um, Eunice and I got a, a wonderful chance to uh, drive through Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. And if you know anything about the Rocky Mountains, right, they, some of them, the lowest mountains are at like 9,000 feet above sea level, the highest about 14,000 feet. And when you're driving up a mountain, there are these things called switchbacks. Switchbacks are basically when you're driving one way and then you have to turn and you basically go 180 the other way. All of these twists and turns up a mountain. And the reason that it's so terrifying and even traumatizing is because when you're on the mountainside and you're driving, it's safe, right? Because it's your lane and then another lane and then the edge of the mountain. But when you're on the outside lane, it's you, the end of the road, about six feet of dirt, and then the edge of the mountain where you can tumble down. And I'd love to, you know, tell you how great the views are at the top of the mountain, but I can't because we never made it. You know, about halfway through, 45 minutes in, I turned to Eunice and I was like, I'm sorry, honey, I can't do this. And so we turned around in the middle of the mountain and we came all the way back down. It's that terrifying. Now, to go up a mountain like that, do you know what the speed limit is with the traffic laws? It's something like 25 miles per hour. Now, why is that set in place? It's set in place for your safety and your protection, for your good. Because what would happen if you ignored that law and you drove 50 miles per hour down the mountain on the outside of the lane? I guarantee that you would be meeting Jesus very soon. You see, in this case, the law is good. The law prevents death, preserves life, and the same is true for God's law. This is why Paul goes on to say the law, the giving law, it's actually glorious. It's a really good thing. So that it's not the law that brings death. It's your disobedience to the law that brings death. And this distinction is really important. The, the law is not the problem. It's our failure to uphold the law that's the problem. And the reality is that no person on earth born guilty and corrupt in sin can ever keep God's law on their own. I mean, you may have the sincerest intentions and you may put forth the greatest effort, but anybody who fails and falls short of the law has only for them death and condemnation in the old covenant. Dear friends, this is why, by the way, any Christian message that focuses on trying harder and doing better, any message that reduces Christianity to loving neighbor and being a good person is not only not the gospel, but it actually breeds more and more death and condemnation among people. You cannot save yourself, and it is unloving to, su to suggest otherwise. And this is the great predicament of humanity under the old covenant into this Paul brings a glorious message for us because he says, God has acted. God has done something. And what has he done? Twice Paul says the old covenant was brought to an end. God brought the old covenant to an end by sending Jesus Christ, his one and only son into the world to fulfill it, to make it obsolete. 
Hebrews 8, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, Jesus makes the first covenant, the old covenant, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And what this means is that those who trust in Jesus no longer live under the old covenant and the law's demands. That death and condemnation are no longer pronounced over you. Why? Because death and condemnation have been pronounced over Jesus. You see, the gospel is the good news, especially as we celebrate in this Advent season, that Jesus Christ came into the world and he subjected himself under the old covenant. The lawgiver and the lawmaker subjected himself to the law's demands. He chose to put himself under the law. He obeyed it perfectly and fully and completely in every way. And yet, and yet, he suffered the fate of one who had disobeyed of one who had failed, of one who had fell short. How could the only righteous person to have ever lived and walked this earth be condemned to death on a cross? And some might think that this is a gross misconduct of justice. But herein lies the beauty of the gospel. That in the sinless one taking on our sin, the perfect law keeper taking the punishment of law breakers. God showed forth his incredible love for sinners. His abundance of grace and mercy and the depth of his kindness and his compassion. The perfect son of God gladly lowered himself into the place of punishment on a cross so you and I could be spared and we could be saved. And Paul says, all of humanity now united to this Jesus by faith. We are brought into the new covenant. We are delivered into the new covenant. And in this covenant, it is a ministry of the spirit and of righteousness. It's of the spirit because when sin once ruled your heart, now you're ruled by the spirit. It's righteousness because whereas you were once declared condemned in your failure, you are now seen as righteous in Jesus Christ. So Paul goes on to talk about the glory of this gospel. And he says in verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The permanence of the new covenant, the fact that it won't change and it won't go away means that you can enjoy today with certainty and surety that the Father's delight and pleasure over you it's not a passing nor fading thing. You see, the permanence of the new covenant means that God will never be so disappointed with your sin, never so turned away, surprised, nor disgusted at your sin that he will go back on his word and his promise. The permanence of the new covenant means that you never need to worry and fear that you have messed up so bad, wandered so far away, or been gone so long that God will not welcome you back with open arms when you turn and come to him. This is the permanence of the new covenant. And the Father seals that by sending his spirit. And when the spirit comes into our lives, he does two things. He works out two realities, salvation and sanctification. First, salvation, the spirit comes into our lives and he removes the veils of blindness that cover our hearts. Paul writes in verses 14 and 15, but their minds were hardened. This is what they were like. 
For to this day, even this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Left in our sins, we are totally veiled and blind. We cannot see the goodness and the glory and the grace of God. But verse 16 and 17 promise, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul says that unless the spirit comes into your life and lifts the veil, you will continue to reject and refuse Christ and live in blindness. But the spirit comes, he lifts the veil so that you are no longer in a blindness, but now you can behold the face of Jesus Christ and know salvation. That's the first thing the spirit does. The second thing the Spirit does is he removes the veil so that you may behold Jesus Christ, not just for salvation, but now for sanctification. In the climax of this passage, verse 18, Paul writes this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul makes it really simple. He says, there is no secret to Christ-likeness. How does one grow more and more to be like Jesus? It's not by trying harder and doing more and being better. It's not by committing yourself to more discipline and duty and determination. How do you become like Jesus? You behold Jesus. You see, it's interesting here. Paul says that you behold the glory of the Lord. Now, what is the glory of the Lord? I mean, is it smoke? Is it a fragrance? The glory of the Lord is seen in the person of Jesus. Paul, a little bit later, just a few verses later in chapter 4, writes this. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Your friends, if you ever pray, God, show me your glory, God will show you his son. So the glory of the Lord is Jesus. And so you become like Jesus as you behold Jesus. Now, some of us don't like this because we want some things. You want me to give three, three things for you to do this, this evening or this week or this month or this upcoming new year. That's how I want to be like Jesus. Tell me five steps. But Paul doesn't say that. He says you're being transformed, passive, from one image, one degree of glory to another, progressive. But it's happening not as you are totally passive, but as you are beholding. How does that work? Well, it's because when you behold the face of Christ, when you know him and you grow in intimacy with him, when there's familiarity between you and him, when you learn his ways and you discern his heart, when you know who he is and what he's done, it has a way of changing you. Now that sounds so not tangible. Give me something more concrete. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the scriptures don't give a book that lists all the steps on how to be like Jesus. Instead, the scriptures are more concerned with just telling you who he is and what he's done for you. Because it's actually in beholding that there's a becoming. Here's an example of, of what I mean. On the week leading up to Thanksgiving and the week of Thanksgiving, uh, Eunice and I made more stuffing 
than we ever hoped to make ever again. Uh, we knew that the church potluck was going to happen on Sunday, and so uh, we went to Costco. We bought uh, several large bulk boxes of stuffing, and uh, the week. And by the way, each each bag there's three in a box. Each bag is 24 ounces. Um, and so the week before, we made a trial run of the the stuffing. We I uh, found a recipe. We followed all of the exact. Um, instructions, all the exact measurements, and it was good. And so we knew we were confident. So on um, that Sunday, I guess two weeks ago, the potluck Sunday, uh, we made about 12 pounds of stuffing. Um, do you ever go to Costco and you buy the, the bulk butter and you're like, this will last me one year? It lasted one week. Um, and so if some of you are wondering why you gained weight after that potluck and you ate the stuffing, you know why. But here's what I realized. We made it the first time. We followed all the instructions. It was good. The second time, things were a little crazy, so we just kind of cheated, and we bent the rules a little bit, and it was better. Then we made it a third time on Thanksgiving Day, but things were so hectic and crazy around the house. We bent a lot of the rules, and it was really good. And then we had a th- uh, Friendsgiving that s- Saturday, but because we had this, bu- you know, this bulk-sized stuffing, we made it for the fourth time. And this time... We didn't consult. We didn't look at anything. We didn't measure anything. We just looked at it and poured, you know, however much milk I had, that's what I poured. And however many onions we had, that's what we put in. We eyeballed the whole thing and it was the best stuffing yet. Why? Why? Because each time we made it, we were getting more and more familiar with it. We knew what it was supposed to look like. We knew what too much moisture was and too little moisture was. We could taste it. We knew what proper seasoning was. I used to get really frustrated when recipes said, put a pinch of salt. Like my pinch is far bigger than Eunice's pinch of salt. But we began to understand, oh, a pinch of salt, it's not a unit of measurement. Pinch of salt means like put salt until it tastes good. (laughs) And as we grew more and more familiar with it, we had a sense of what it was supposed to be. Some of you may not, you know, have an, an understand what I'm talking about. If you don't, um, Ask your mother to give you the recipe for the best dish she makes, and you'll realize, oh, this woman has no recipe, that everything is just eyeballing it, and you just put in what you have, and yet it's the most delicious thing you can eat because you have a sense of it. Dear friends, how do you grow to be like Jesus? As you behold him, you're familiar with him. You know him. You know what makes his heart beat. You know what brings him joy. You know what brings him sadness and what grieves him, your sin. You know what your obedience and how it gives joy to him. You begin to know him. And in beholding him, you start becoming like him. This is what it means to behold Jesus and to be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. But on the flip side of that, that means you can never become like a person that you never talk to. You can never become like the person you never spend time with. Whom you never sit down with. I think so many of us get frustrated with the slow pace of change in our lives or, or the short-lived nature of the change that happens in our lives or, or the fact that we can't seem to change in our lives, but often at the root of that is because we are beholding ourselves far more than we are beholding Christ. Because we're really looking for how I can change myself, how I can self-improve. But the power to sanctify comes from the same power that saves, and the power that saves comes from Jesus. 
So how are you transformed more and more to his image by beholding Christ? C.S. Lewis in um, the Chronicles of Narnia has a book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where he really captures this. Uh, the, the story, it, it, in that book, there, there's a character named Eustace uh, who is traveling, and he stumbles upon uh, a dragon's cave. There's a large pile of gold. He's so full of greed, he falls asleep and starts dreaming about greed and selfish thoughts. And he wakes up and finds that he's actually turned into a scaly old dragon. And he doesn't know what to do, so he begins picking off the scales from himself. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, uh, so I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So Eustace is pretty proud of himself for taking off the scales from off of him, but then he goes into the bath only to realize that the scales have grown back on. And he does this process three times only to realize he cannot change himself. His own efforts are useless. And in that moment of desperation, the great lion Aslan shows up and says, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace had a desperation, gives in. And this is what he describes. The very first terror he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I've done myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And at the end of this, Aslan throws Eustace in the water, where he realizes the great transformation that he's now undergone. And he says, I saw that I had finally turned into a boy again. And what C.S. Lewis is capturing here, dear friends, is that the power to change and transform, to become more like Christ, it's not a power found within ourselves. It's not determined on your discipline and your determination and your willpower. You see, one of the great paradoxes of the gospel is that change doesn't happen the more you do for Jesus. Change happens the more you behold him. I think a lot of us here are trying to give up certain vices, stop certain addictions, make better choices, have healthier habits, and we're all doing it by our own willpower. When we try to uproot these things from our lives, we end up never going deep enough because most of us are just trying to modify our actions, our behavior. But when you behold Jesus, it's not your actions that are changing. When you behold Jesus, it's your affections that are changing. And when your affections change in your heart, your actions change in your hands. You see, the gospel is targeting not just making you do better things, making you into Christ. And as you behold him, as your affection and heart for him change, your life begins to look like his. And in this Advent season, we behold the incarnate Christ, the eternal son of God who condescended and came to this earth, took on frail humanity, was born as an infant in a manger so that he might be like one of us. 
and from one degree of glory to another, beholding Christ in his humility, we become humble. We behold the crucified Christ, the very author of life, who spoke this world into existence and yet in taking upon human flesh was nailed to a cross to endure the shame and the sin that you and I deserved so that we might taste life and not death. Beholding him from one degree of glory to another, all of a sudden, what we think power and glory and strength looks like begins to change. You see, dear friends, how does change happen in your life? How do you become like Jesus? It's by beholding the one, the one glory of the Lord who came down to this earth to save us from the law's demands, to bring us into the new covenant. And he does his work from the inside out, from our affections to our actions. And so if transformation happens by beholding, behold Jesus Christ, dear friends. Behold him.